that classic, you know, trod, a trod, <laughs> that classic trad. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor, but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Neil Almond. Hello again. And together, we're going to explore the 2022 Education White Paper. But first, Chris, what you reading for? Hey, what you reading for? This week, I've taken a bit of a dive back into something I've read previously, um, and I knew it was the sort of book that would want would re require me to go back to it. Um, Hendrik and Kirshner's How Learning Happens. In particular, I've gone back to it because I wanted to find out more about um, Alcibel's paper on advanced organisers. And it's only since having discussions about it with someone who knows way more about this than I do, that I've started to realise how interesting Alcibel's work potentially is. So it isn't just about generally the importance of, of background knowledge when you are learning something. It relates more or as much to the idea of thinking about how information or knowledge in a mind can be thought of as hierarchically organised concepts and how by then thinking about how that hierarchical organization works, you can more effectively undertake the beginning components of instruction or instruction more generally. I'm still at the very beginning of starting to understand this. So someone who's familiar with Alcibel might now say, nope, you've misunderstood that. That person might be me on next week's episode, who knows? But at the moment it's fascinating and I'm yeah looking forward to digging further into his work. What about you, Neil? What are you reading for? Well, I'm reading a book that I think both of you may have read, but it's Mathematical Tasks, The Bridge Between Teaching and Learning by Chris McGrain and Mark McCourt. Uh, I was on, I had to take a, bizarrely, a, a flight to Dublin over the weekend, and I thought it'd be a good, good one to read on the plane, and enjoying it immensely. I think Chris, uh, who would, I don't think Mark would complain about me calling him the, the main author of this uh, particular title, uh, I think he balances that classic trad prog line in terms of, you know, should we let children be discovering maths themselves or should we just be drilling them by giving them uh, sheds loads of, of practice? And I haven't finished it yet. Um, I've just gotten to the point where he talks about pedagogy and different ideas regarding what that pedagogy might look like. And I'm really looking forward to this next chapter, which was all about how um, he chooses to classify tasks depending on what mathematical thinking you want to generate. So what a task for um, behaving mathematically might look like versus a task um, that brings that you want to bring about conceptual fluency or something like that. So yeah, I'd say I started it on a flight to Dublin and I easily got 100 odd pages in in that hour and 20 minutes. So enjoying it immensely. Kieran, what are you reading for? I think I read that a couple of Christmases ago, and you're absolutely right. And um, I think Chris wrote it with Mark's encouragement, you know, so he did the, the bulk of the legwork, I think. And yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's definitely one that everyone should check out, you know, whether you're primary or, or secondary. I've actually been listening this week to a podcast 
by who I like to see as the the uncle of the Tadabe family, Andrew Jeffrey. So he and um, you know he's he's um, he's wise and he shares his experience with us, but he's also very mischievous. So he's he's definitely the uncle figure, I think, in a lot of respects. But um, him and Rob Eastaway, they have a podcast called Puzzling Maths, and essentially they look at some you know it's it's recreational maths and they're fantastic storytellers. So it's all connected into this sort of thirty minute tapestry. And so I think the last one I was listening to, they were on this their second outdoor broadcast and they were at, um, I won't spoil where they were because the first problem is you had to work out where they were. But yeah, so and lots of stuff. Because like Andrew did the Radio 5 Live puzzle every night. I remember during one of the partial closers driving home and trying to solve the problem before he got to the response. I think they must have set up when we were in school and then uh, I'd be driving home listening to it. So yeah, well worth checking out. Um, you know, especially if you want to fit some recreational maths into your life, but, you know, have not yet found the, find the time. This week's episode comes from a request on Discord from one of our Kofi subscribers, I think. I think Sam's on Kofi. But I want to take this, before we start, take the, the time to thank everybody who does sponsor the podcast on Kofi, because it means that we can, in the future, you know, fund zoom get microphones for those of us who need sort of upgrades you know so Neil, you'll be in receipt of a microphone this side of the summer holidays and you know and sort of in return we have things like cpd where you know one of them i explore when to phase out concrete resources you know there's behind the scenes footage that i mean a week when we're chatting you know sort of before and after the the podcast recordings you know and so hopefully as well as the podcast every week you know something that um you know, brings value to for people's um, sort of really valued contributions. Um, so yeah, it came from Discord, where we talk about education all the time. And we wanted to focus on the 2022 education white paper, which probably makes this the most current episode we've done, because we're living and breathing the release of that paper this week. I don't think we'll get it done in one episode. So at least over the next two weeks, perhaps more, we'll see. We're going to explore the key themes, what we think, and what we might do if we had the power of ministers in this situation, where we've got this uh, statement of intent, what actions would we use to back those up? The first place I'd like to start is with the overarching goal for primary. And so it says that 90% of children will leave primary school, this is in the year 2030, I think, having achieved the expected standard in reading, writing, and mathematics. So thoughts on the floor. What are your, what are your, what were your immediate reactions to that one? It won't happen. That's, that's my fundamental, like, like my immediate response is that won't happen unless they drastically change the grade boundaries or drastically change the form of assessment. I simply don't see it happening. I mean, you, you could say that this is me being pessimistic. You could say this is me being like the, the enemy of ambitious schools everywhere. But I just, being realistic, I don't imagine that it will come to pass. I would also argue that this is probably a figure that's just been plucked from the air. And given some of the things we're perhaps likely to talk about, I, I can imagine it hasn't been selected on the basis of it being an ambitious but achievable goal, but it's been selected on the basis that it's quite a big and nice round number. 
yeah, there's not much more else to say with that, is there? Uh, I just think it's worth noting because I think the conversation very quickly uh, on Twitter went about, oh, you know, well, I have a class of 20, if you're so fortunate. That only means, you know, one child needs uh, to not make it. And so therefore it's not going to happen, but it's not looking at it at uh, an at-school level. It is that that national picture. Um, but like Chris said, I think, you know, it is it is ambitious. There's no um, There's no doubt against that. But I think it's, yeah, foolhardy ambition, I think. That's only going to be used to potentially show that it's either going to go one or two ways. It will either be a stick to beat schools later on down the line around the year 2030 and how awful schools are, or it's just going to potentially embarrass the government in eight years' time um, because they failed to do that. And uh, given those two options, I think it's more likely to be the former than the latter. Yeah, I think um, national average for SCND is between 12 and 15%. So when you think about how that works between, that's obviously not to mean that um, children with SCND, you know, can't achieve um, expected standard across all um, those three subjects, but it just allows very little room for, uh, very little wiggle way for, uh, you know, other children to therefore succeed. So yeah, lofty ambitions, but um misplaced and will be used as a tool to potentially be the profession in eight years time yeah and it's also an education secretary talking about what's going to happen eight years from now right how long do education secretaries last if if it's like a football manager who says that you know 10 seasons from now we're going to win the champions league so well you're not going to be manager two years from now so that is just an empty promise I mean, you can make an argument that they have to look far into the future, but yeah, I, I don't, it's hard, it's hard to buy it. It's hard to, to really think that this is a target they care about rather than just a nice big round number. I think the OECD also has a target for 2030, something like several million teachers they want to get on board before the year 2030. And if, if we beat them with too many sticks, I don't think they're going to meet that target. So they're there's a fine balance act, you know, and I think retention goes up later on, doesn't it? Someone ran the numbers on Twitter and did a thread about how it's not as unlikely as you think, you know, certainly on that national level. I haven't decided whether or not I was convinced, you know, and then obviously listening to you guys, I'm thinking this might be more difficult than it seems, but, you know, the distribution isn't going to be 90% across all schools. It's going to be the current schools were 100% of the pupils achieved the expected standard and across all three subjects. And then is it a slight rise? What was the point? The point was that a certain percentage of children already had made the expected standard in at least one of the subjects. So you were, you were then focusing on two subjects or one subject with some of the children. But I haven't decided if the logic actually applies to the real world. I can't, I can't remember for the life of me what the thread was. I remember thinking and going, no, this is a different tech. But at the moment, I'm undecided. It's, it sounded rational, but I think we're already trying those things with the children who can't yet read, but are quite proficient in mathematics. So we'll, we'll see. I would be perhaps slightly more optimistic about this target if it weren't already the case that schools were focusing on that target. Schools were already looking at how do I get as high a percentage as possible to the expected standard in all three, reading, writing, and maths? That's always on the agenda. So there's no 
the cynic in me says there's no more mucking around with statistics, nudging certain children in order to boost the statistics, ignoring certain children that you don't think you have any chance of making it anyway and just accepting them as dead loss. I hate that expression, obviously, but it's the sort of things I've heard schools talk about because of the nature of accountability. So I just, if, if this were a new way of looking at judging schools, I might say, oh, okay, maybe we might make it partly because of improvements and partly because of cynical game playing. But I would imagine that all of the cynical game playing that can be done already is being done because schools are already judged in that way. We all want as many pupils as possible leaving primary school at the expected standard. You know, because I think in the white paper, it talks about the percentage of pupils who don't meet the expected standard, who go on to get sort of a minimum standard GCSE for employment. I think it was 20% in that ballpark convert, which is not surprising, you know, and with the biggest differences in future earnings coming at that CD, what would it be, 4-3 boundary now? It's really important that we do get them there. So what would you do? What would you put in place? to get 90% of pupils nationally to the expected standard across the core subjects? So I think I would rip up the way that reading is currently assessed because as I'm sure listeners will know, it's not necessarily a reading assessment. It's more of a, a general knowledge vocabulary uh, assessment. And I think from having marked a fair few uh, SATS papers in my time. There are kids who miss out on one or two marks because the nature of the uh, mark scheme is just not particularly nice. Where it's like, well, yeah, like, I, understand, I can totally understand why you're saying that. And actually, I think your point is quite valid, but it doesn't fit within this uh, the mark scheme, so I can't give it to you. And I think if I were to somehow to get this number, I would probably change reading to more of a fluency assessment so this idea that you know they need to read the text at a certain level with so many words and you know they need to effectively reach these words correct words correct per minute and then i'd probably just throw in a few you know 10 comprehension questions just about that and it would kind of almost be done like the um the way that we run current currently run reading fluency assessments in school or kind of the way that you would have done the reception baseline kind of like a one-to-one just like a quick five ten minutes working with those students i think that could be one way that you could potentially get to an up to 90 percent. so it kind of doesn't kind of it lessens the hope that the content on your reading assessment is something that the children actually are aware of and i suppose the other thing is that i would probably fundamentally look at the maths curriculum again and potentially uh, chop a few things out that are just there to who knows really why Roman numerals is there, but not that I mind Roman numerals, I quite enjoy teaching it, but certainly I think our um, our efforts could go far more on them being far more proficient with mental methods or, you know, giving them time to really explore and, you know, and understand the conceptual nature of fractions, say, rather than just convert between imperial and metric units. So I think, for those two, it would be, yeah, rethink about how we actually assess reading and change it to more of a kind of a fluency level. 
and a bit of a bit of trimming of the maths curriculum accompanied by some high quality math specific uh, CPD as well to help teachers actually really teach that content. With regards to writing, again, thinking back to the conversations that I've had with yourself and Elliot Morgan on the writing moderation episode, potentially switching to some sort of a comparative judgment model that involving all pupils nationally. As I say, from there, you can get a, and produce a, a writing age. And so I would say as long as their writing age kind of meets their actual age, then I'd be happy to say that they are uh, at the expected standard. But I appreciate I'm playing a bit with statistics on that one. Writing is the easy one. We can get that to 100% next year because, I mean, it's it's made up. Oh, no, no. I'm inherently biased <laughs> or affected by bias. <laughs> it might sound a little bit contradictory given the pessimistic tone I sounded earlier, but maybe not in the time frame that the government are looking at. 90% expected standards across the board is totally achievable, but politically impossible. The things that you would think you would need to do in order to make this happen are things that I do not think would be palatable to a large chunk of parents across the country. The reason why we get so, the reason why there is a solid chunk of kind of 30% of children who don't achieve what they should achieve across the board isn't because they can't achieve, it's because they need a curriculum that at the very beginning in particular focuses uh, works or works at the pace that they require builds the foundations that they require and this is often going well this is inevitably going to necessitate schools to focus resources into those children who are least likely to make the expected standards you would need to make a commitment at primary school to say those children who need the most support who um, struggle most with spoken language early reading the foundational experiences that, that support arithmetic, all of these things, you would need to invest time into them. That might be, in order to achieve that, you might say, well, the formal maths curriculum, as we know it, doesn't start until halfway through year two, or whatever it might be. And you use the time that comes before that to bring all students up to a certain level of readiness for that formal curriculum. I think if you did that, I actually think over the my personal view is that everyone would benefit over the longer term, but I don't think everyone would buy into that idea, that prioritisation of those children who are most likely to struggle to make expected standards. So, yeah, it's totally achievable. I just don't think there is a, a willingness to genuinely focus our attention and our support and our resources on the children who seemingly from the beginning are otherwise least likely to achieve. As I read this, there were a number of times I felt this is a manifesto for some of my ideas, which may not be mainstream, but it appears that they're coming into the mainstream because I think this is a manifesto for only teaching three subjects of primary, because if we only teach three subjects of primary and you'll see how that feeds into the tuition and how that feeds into the subject specialism, then every child leaves school knowing how to read, knowing how to write and functionally numerate by creating the space you talk about to be fully responsive. And I think over eight years, you could convert a generalist population of teachers into specialists who teach maybe three subjects. And from half eight in the morning to half one in the afternoon, core. 
and the afternoon you have enrichment you know like our southeast asian counterparts and i think that's how you get 100 percent yeah not 90 percent 100 percent of pupils to the expected standard in what matters i would quibble about the reading part of it i mean well it depends how it depends what comes into the enrichment but it's hard to reach the expected standard for reading if you don't know quite a lot about the world in which you live but then again if the enrichment stuff's doing that Slovakia for example where my partner's from they do um their school day ends one o'clock 1 30 ish and uh, up until about age 13 or 14 and that afternoon it, it's almost identical to what you've described happening in parts of Southeast Asia it's the idea that your primary school teachers would be doing PE or art or music, or no, these are delivered by outside agencies and volunteers. Actually, that reminds me, one of the thing, radical sounding proposition for boosting reading outcomes. I think there is, uh, there is an army of pensioners who would absolutely love to be more involved in supporting children learn to read in their local schools. Turn up, hear children read. It, it would make a massive difference. How exactly you go about organising that, I'm not sure. But yeah, I mean, maybe this is just me thinking about my own mum, who would be brilliant at doing that and who is a pensioner. But I remember reading to someone from the local community when I was at school on a daily basis. And if I, I can guess that I was probably one of the pretty good readers. And so reading to an adult one-to-one -one wasn't just something for some children it was for everyone when I was at school and one of the ways they facilitated that was by having lots and lots of volunteers from the local community and I think that's something that perhaps we've lost or at least it's something that we could consider bringing back to schools in a more formal level. I used to see that quite a lot prior to COVID lots of schools would have them um, you know maybe not on the scale that you're imagining and I really like how you've run with my ridiculously outlandish ideas. But I think I'll, I'll end on this point by going, I, I will be waiting for the next eight years. I'll be bending the ears of as many ministers as I can find. Because in, in 2030, I'm going to set out my 10-year manifesto that by 2040, every child will be able to read, write, and count. Just imagine if all that work that schools have put into the minutiae detail of curriculum coherence in all those foundation subjects only for it to then be ripped apart by the the mackle plan <laughs> i didn't get into politics to be popular i give in to make a difference <laughs> yeah no i hear what chris is. i think yeah it reminds me of you know was it was it tony blair's like new labor that whole like that mum's army and which turned out to be like the formalization of tas and stuff like that yeah it's, it's like the that 2.0 but just with yeah pensioners i'm all for it bring it on i'm now that you know starting to see more visitors in school i'm more than happy for someone to come in and listen to children read 10 minutes every day i think it's very important to establish a level of impartiality on this next one it's about the national professional qualification for early years leadership and a 180 million investment in including training for practitioners in early years to support literacy and numeracy. I know that early years teachers are some of those who are most vocally opposed to the current government. And there's part of me that thinks this could be interpreted as a way to control the narrative in early years 
which quite often has the biggest sort of juxtaposition to government policy. So be very interested. What were your opinions? First thing that jumped out to me when I read this was a bit of training that I had the other day where someone was talking about um, a early years leader who was responsible for safeguarding professional development of the people they worked with, um, responsibility for financial management of the, the center that they ran, et cetera, et cetera. And they, I, I was given a list of their responsibilities and I thought, yeah, this is obviously an impressive individual doing a wonderful job. And then I found out that they were earning £12 an hour. You're absolutely right, Chris. The key workers that my own children had when their time at nursery before they went to primary school, you know, they made a massive impact. And they absolutely 100% should be remunerated appropriately for it because they're, they're influential in the lives of so many children. I hadn't, I hadn't even thought of that, Chris. So, yeah, so I think you're absolutely spot on. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what that qualification entails, what that looks like. I think uh, early years is certainly, you know, an area that I've, I've always identified as something that I need to work on and work at. I think it has uh, potential to, depending on how it goes, to really kind of cause a, a greater schism or to certainly perhaps more codify that schism that you currently do see in the early years, given their... Um, certain uh, corners of uh, Twitter of some early years practitioners who I really do um, respect quite a lot in terms of how they've reacted to the uh, updated uh, early early learning goals, particularly in relation to the uh, the maths where they need to know number bonds to of, of 10 without uh, you know, rhyme or using manipulatives and things like that. And so I think if they too do kind of continue going down that route, I think it could really actually uh, split a large portion of the uh, our early years colleagues, which I hope it, I hope it doesn't. I hope, I hope that it does. Um, it says the Educational Endowment Foundation are going to assure, uh, assure this evidence. So semi-hopeful that uh, they'll do a good job and it will kind of hopefully potentially bring the sector together and not not divide it greater than it potentially already is yeah i, I echo that the thing to note as well and I, i'm sure all of us would happily state this there's an extent to which this is way beyond our expertise so we trust the the experiences of those that know a great deal more about this than than we do but i can't help but come to it with yeah a little cynicism we take it in good faith. I'm fully behind this because what do we always say? Best teachers early on makes the biggest difference. You know, our most skilled teachers, they teach our youngest children. If 180 million pounds goes far enough and this qualification raises the possibilities for our pupils when they're young, then this could be a game changer. You know, I, I don't, it sounds like a huge number but I haven't run the numbers to see how far this stretches, like you say, over uh, maintained schools, academized schools with, with, nur with nursery and reception provision, and then the, what would you call it, the private sector in terms of private nurseries and, and early year settings. You know, So hopefully this shows some sort of signal of intent to prioritize, because they, they do mention the, the learning gap early on. I think it's fundamental. And I think it'll make 
life easier for those pupils as they go through school if they're getting really high quality provision or if this qualification teaches us something about early reading writing and mathematics you know to, to stay with the, the core at the minute that we don't know that can make a big difference to those pupils who come in with socially impoverished upbringings if there's one thing that does give me a bit of optimism it's the fact that there are people out there who are already thinking about how to design the MPQ EY and from my experience of chatting to a few people who might be involved in this sort of thing they are people with a great deal of experience and expertise in this area so I mean even if aspects of this don't work out I'm sure there may be parts of it that um, are pretty positive for the sector. I think we also need to kind of keep in mind here as well, kind of just touching on something that you said, Kieran, as wonderful as all of this is, and obviously we hope it's going to be helpful. Uh, it's no replacement for kind of really uh, bolstering that social safety net to make sure that actually, you know, our youngest students are coming in uh, you know, well-fed, well-slept, well-clothed, and, you know, all of those things that are so important for learning and so important in those, you know, if you have a, if you have a child who hasn't slept properly, uh, you know, clothes are filthy and they're just generally, you know, not in a good place. You know, you can have the best people having this, uh, you know, this qualification, but from my experience, certainly not much learning is, or the learning certainly isn't going to be as effective as it could be if those things were in place for our youngest learners. The next thing that stood out to me was the £30,000 starting salary and incentives to work in schools who need it most, which I think if I read on later equates to £3,000 a year tax-free for, for years one to five if you teach one of the mathematics-based secondary subjects. What were your thoughts when you heard about this? I mean, I'm never going to complain about teachers being paid more. So yeah, that's obviously to be welcomed. I think, and obviously I say, while well, I welcome that decision, I think what was missed is looking to financially award teachers, both at the secondary uh, and primary level teachers who just want to stay in the classroom and not have to feel like the only way I'm going to be able to afford a house in the southeast is if I have to take on uh, leadership that's going to take me out of the classroom I think certainly that is a massive wasted opportunity especially now with all the CPD that's provided you know I'm personally you know, I would wish I was in the classroom far more than I am uh, to you know really benefit from all the things that we are learning about how students learn and how best to use various manipulatives to teach you know maths uh, concepts but unfortunately I, I live in London and, and I can't save for a deposit and still only be on the you know main pay scale or the upper pay scale so I kind of feel like that is a, a massively missed uh, point when it comes to investing in teachers I definitely think finding way to financially support teachers who just want to remain good teachers in the classroom and not have to worry about any leadership responsibility whatsoever, I think is uh, certainly something that should be looked at. I think it's fair to say that £30,000 as a starting salary is competitive with any graduate career, which is positive, of course, in terms of 
trying to attract people to the profession. I think sometimes people do then remain in the profession because they know that even if they, you know, the job isn't quite what they hoped it would be, they know that they might struggle to immediately earn that kind of money in other areas. So on a, again, cynical level, better pay is likely to to keep people in the classroom or encourage them to persevere when uh, things are trying. I'm not so sure about the £3,000 to keep people in place in secondary education when it comes to, I think it's like maths and science. Just because I've seen those kinds of incentives, I wouldn't say backfire, but um, not lead to the outcomes that people are hoping for. I would say that what you really need is encouraging more people to train initially to be maths teachers and you can make an argument that 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 extra three thousand pounds is enough of an inducement to make them but i'm not so sure i think that making it cheaper to train to become a teacher that the money needs to i would say that front loading that money if you want people to train to be a science teacher sorry a physics teacher or a chemistry teacher or a maths teacher you, I think you need to front load that money in terms of training rather than saying, look, when you qualify for the first five years, you'll effectively earn an extra £15,000. I think that's a little bit far down the line, except for maybe the odd economics graduate who may have learned to think in those exact terms. I'm sure he's listening, that one precise economics <laughs> graduate. <laughs> I mean, initially, I was going to say that I don't think money is the issue here but if you know i totally think nurses for the work that they do they should graduate for free and if you extend it to teachers particularly those teachers who are going to teach in areas of socioeconomic deprivation or challenging circumstances 100 with you when i read it i felt they were missing the trick now in this document the word evidence is used 70 times the phrase evidence informed appears every two and a half pages but if i remember correctly rebecca allen and sam sims outlined that money isn't what keeps people in the teaching profession and two of the biggest drivers were the satisfaction at the job that's done and the level of autonomy and when I think about, you know, I've only ever worked in challenging circumstances and challenging areas. And when I think about my colleagues, and sometimes I've been given the chance to write about my job, and I write about this all the time, they really want to be there. They really want to help those families. It is a vocation. And I don't think throwing money at it, you know, I'm not going to complain 30,000 start, fantastic. I'm not going to say no. But I think you need to get right underneath this. And if I were the person responsible for this, I would think about how I could make teaching in those circumstances. You know, they use the phrase high profile. But how do we make the obvious rewards as obvious as they they can be? And how do we give teachers the autonomy, you know, in the right areas that allow them to feel like they're achieving something, like it's their labour that has achieved it, uh, to support the families and communities that need it most. You know, so I was, yeah, uh, everything I've read about 
why teachers stay in the profession suggests that money isn't the answer. So I was quite surprised that that was the answer being proposed here. That word autonomy can sometimes mean a lot of things to different people. So I'd be interested in that. Um, I think it's the, is it the teacher gap that they talk about? Yeah, I'd be interested to see what they, how they got and what autonomy meant in those circumstances, because certainly kind of the way certainly curriculum is going is that, you know, you are getting potentially a bit less autonomy in your curriculum. Um, and I think that's probably a good trade-off, I think, for teachers and I think for pupils. So yeah, I'd be really interested what, what they mean, what they meant by autonomy. Yeah, I totally agree. Me and Pep's talked about it at the start of season four. You know, we're talking about autonomy in the right places. You know, I think curricular autonomy, less of that, but perhaps when you are highly skilled, more pedagogical autonomy might be the trade-off, you know, because no matter how intended a curriculum is, the most skilled teachers are going to enact that in a completely different way from our novice teachers. So I think it is, like you say, finding which bits of autonomy are essential, which bits of autonomy allow us to feel that satisfaction in our roles and then keep us on. So yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. And I, you know, hand on heart, couldn't at this moment say what those bits are. But when I think of it, I think of less curricular autonomy, more autonomy in terms of decision-making and responsiveness. I mean, I'd intended for this to be two episodes, but I think we're going to get significantly more from this. All that's left to say, I think, is let's put a pin in it here. Return to this next week. Thank you very much, Chris, for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Neil. Always a pleasure. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>